Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. Shane Parrish has been described by Business Insider as Wall Street's biggest influencer. He's an entrepreneur, an investor and a thinker whose work is used by many of the world's very top organisations and biggest sports teams. He's also a former spy and a cybersecurity expert at Canada's top intelligence agency. Now, this episode is about thinking clearly, not just in terms of the big decisions in life, but the everyday decisions which have a much bigger impact on our trajectory than we realise. He talks about playing the game of life in either hard mode or easy mode, and easy mode is all about making decisions so that when unexpected crises arise, you're ready for them. He identifies the barriers to clear thinking, emotional, ego, social and inertia and shares some gold on why you might want to consider setting some rules in life to make things easier for yourself. Now, don't worry, he explains all of this with examples and is a really interesting, thoughtful and wise guy. And I've got no doubt you'll get a lot of value from this episode. So enjoy. Shane Parrish. How lovely to see you. How are you? Thanks for having me, Simon. I'm doing really well. I'm excited for this. As you know, I read Clear Thinking. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So first things first, never easy writing a book. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. It's always good to hear uh, the feedback. I mean, the response has blown me away from making the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and number one in Canada and all of these things. But what really makes me feel good is when people email me and they tell me how useful it's been to them and how they're doing something different as a result of reading the book or how it's changed their thinking or their life. And there was so much rich material that got my mental cogs whirring. But I want to go back before we dig into all that 
even before we touch on your uh, previous career as well, I was having a look through, I think it was your social media, and I saw that someone had posted something, I think uh, maybe 2018, that had been an inspiration for you. They said something like, I'm pretty sure Mr. Parrish has had or is in the middle of his 15 minutes of fame. So can you just talk about how that inspired you? Well, I'm a real person, right? And I take motivation from a lot of different places. And I think a lot of things are how you interpret them and how you use them to your advantage. And, you know, uh, I have these little comments that I've just held on to throughout my entire life, whether it was my grade nine teacher telling me I wouldn't, uh, I would be lucky to graduate from high school or one of my, when I've worked for a uh, deputy minister, uh, having her tell me I was the worst writer she's ever seen in her entire career, or whether it was this comment on the New York Times blog post, which is uh, I, from a guy, somebody in Portland, Oregon, uh, who you know unsuspectingly sort of left this comment and said, "I am very confident Mr. Parrish is enjoying his 15 minutes of fame." And you know uh, these comments don't have to pull you down, right? They can fuel you. And, you know, they might be right. And so I think part of me is scared that they might be right. And it makes me work harder. And so somebody had given me this gift of the New York Times profile and they had it framed and they hung it up in the office. And it was this big, like, surprise. And I was like, oh, gosh, like, this seems a bit pretentious. Um, I don't want this. So what I did was I taped that comment to the bottom of the frame of the picture. So every day I would walk in and I would just be confronted with this one guy, one random person. I don't even know if it's a guy, one random person in Portland, Oregon, just reminding me that I need to do the work today uh, and I need to do the work for the future. And so you can turn all these negative comments into uh, positive fuel. So are you someone then who is broadly speaking, motivated by that kind of thing, by adversity, by being written off? Yeah, I'm motivated by people who don't believe in me and don't uh, don't think that I can do it, but, but not in a negative way. It's a very positive way um, because what happens for me is I'm like, who are you to tell me this? You don't get to decide this. You nice. can be somebody close to me in my life, whether it's my boss or you know a teacher or somebody far away, but you don't get to dictate the ceiling on me. So it's not necessarily about proving them wrong. It's about saying, no, I'm commander of my own ship fundamentally. Yeah. You don't get to decide where the ceiling is on me. And I use that as fuel and it's fuel that keeps me going. It's fuel that keeps me working harder. It's fuel that keeps me uh, in check on my best days. And it's fuel that drives me on my worst days. And it makes me want to do more and do better. And it does it in a healthy way. It doesn't, I, I don't, I don't think it does it in a negative way. And for a lot of people it does, but my friend Josh Wolf says chips on shoulders, put chips in pockets. And I think there's some truth to that. Uh, you know, look at Tom Brady or all these other athletes and they often have a chip on their shoulder uh, and that drives them and it motivates them and it motivates them to work harder than they otherwise would. And you can turn it into something like I blew up this comment. It was a negative comment, right? Like it was a random negative comment, but I took it and I made it larger than it is. And I made it more important than it is. And I did that in a way to create a fire and a passion in me to keep going and keep myself in check. I like what you say there as well about, okay, so this is a random person, Oregon, but it could also be someone very close to you, a boss, a family member, near or far, it doesn't matter. Now, in a previous life, Shane, you were an intelligence officer. Again, I think it's on your website, but you've had to block out various aspects of 
the role, how long you were there and so on and so forth. So there's obviously a limited amount you can talk about. But actually what I'm interested in is what traits do you think you have that drew you to working there in the first place? Well, that's a really good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. I think what drew me to it was is different than the traits that I have that were valuable being there. So what drew me to it was serving my country uh, and an obligation to sort of give back to the country that has given me so much um, and solving problem or not solving, working on problems that will never be solved and working on intractable problems where your adversary, if you will, always has an advantage. So, uh, you know, I'm from Canada, so everybody has more people than we do. And, you know, they have more resources than we do. And, you know, they have better technology than we do. So what can we do? You can't give up. You have to play. And so I'm attracted to problems like that. I, I think, uh, you know, it was a perfect combination of my interests and a job, if there ever was one. And then on the flip side, I mean, what made me valuable there perhaps was independent thinking, uh, being able to look at problems from a very different lens and a creative lens, bringing in different disciplines from biology and physics to uh, psychology and integrating those into what we were doing at the intelligence agency. And, you know, I think that uh, I got to work with so many amazing, wonderful people uh, for 15 years. And it was what a ride, right? Like, it was great. I loved every minute of it. You also started writing a blog in 2008 and you did it yeah. sort of incognito, as it were. And it blew up and you now have it on a Sunday. It goes out. I think you've got like 600,000 subscribers and I'm fascinated by various elements of it. But why do you think it did go viral and blow up in the way? Because I'm pretty sure you weren't seeking that. That wasn't the point of it. It's actually seeking the opposite, if, if you can believe that. And so the original website, it's now fs.blog, but the original website was 68131-1440.blogger.com. So a series of digits, right? It was never intended for anybody else to read the website. What the website was, was I was thrust into positions of responsibility and authority that uh, I didn't feel confident and capable of handling, but there's nobody else. I mean, you, you're sort of in the midst of rapid growth and you're in the building and you're all we have and you have to do this job. And so you step up and you do the best job that you can. And part of stepping up and doing the best job that you can, along with everybody else who's working their butts off, means I have to get better at this particular aspect of my job. And there's no class in university you can go to about decision-making. There's no class you can go to about thinking. People just expect you to know how to do this. And so I started looking at, well, what do other people do? I just have this bubble of this intelligence agency around me. And while I work with incredibly bright people, it's an ecosystem. It's a closed ecosystem. I want to bring in ideas from outside that ecosystem. I want to study the best in history and the best in the world at making decisions. What do they know that we don't know that we can apply at the intelligence agency? So I started this little website and the website was designed solely to reflect on what I was learning. And I was taking these ideas from outside and I was writing about them and I was writing about them for me, for nobody else, no audience. I didn't, you know, this was, and this was anonymous. I'm not allowed to have a public profile. I'm not even allowed to have a blog. Technically, I mean, 
I'm sure I would have gotten in trouble for having a blog and a website. And at one point in the agency, I definitely did get in trouble once we crossed like 300,000 readers or something or 200,000 or whatever it was. Like they were sort of a little bit paranoid about that. But, um, you know, I wasn't allowed any of that, but it wasn't designed for that. And then it was so weird to me. I just sort of like, there was this thing called feed burner. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but like way back in the day, it was like how you could subscribe to blogs without email. So it was like an RSS feed and people would, uh, and then one day somebody told me like, how does it feel to have, somebody emailed me and was like, how does it feel to have 10,000 followers on FeedBurner? And I was like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. And so I looked and sure enough, you know, we had like 10,000 followers. I was like, how did this even happen? right? Like this doesn't make any sense. Why would people be interested in this? This is like niche, esoteric, uh, you know, it's specific to me. It's like my crib notes. It's you're seeing my reflections in real time and they're not always right. Uh, but there was something I think about the style of writing and the pragmatism about my approach that was taking otherwise a very academic sort of subject and bringing it into usefulness. And I think people appreciated that. And so it started to get passed around. And, you know, by the time 2018 came around, the blog was no longer anonymous. The New York Times called me, uh, I think it was sort of in August, and there, you know, Landon Thomas, the reporter who wrote the profile on me and sort of outed me, if you will, as a spy. Um, he, he said, why is everybody on Wall Street telling me I need to talk to you? And uh, we really blew up from that point on. And uh, it's been a wild ride. I mean, we send a newsletter now to 600,000 people every Sunday. We're growing the fastest we've ever grown. The podcast reaches two or 300,000 people on every episode. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's been a crazy journey. And I'm still surprised by it because I'm still doing the exact same thing that I did at the very beginning, which is... I'm sharing my reflections with you. Uh, these are this is my journey. These are the things that interest me, and they're not always perfect. And sort of, I'm stumbling through it, um, but I'm going to share what I learned in a way that I'm trying to make it useful for you, not only useful in your daily life and work, but also meaningful, so that you can possibly live a more meaningful life uh, as a result of this. And so, I share my inspirations. I share the practical tips and insights and. Yeah, I'm, I'm really just genuinely surprised by this. A couple of things that have just occurred to me there. First of all, it reminds me of Marcus Aurelius's meditations. He wrote that for himself and then that took off as well, right? And then the other thing is it kind of goes against common wisdom that you have to know your audience and you have to direct it towards your audience because actually your audience was you. And mm -hmm. I actually think there's a lot of value in that, in doing something that is true to yourself that you find interesting, and then actually it will find an audience. And well, then as wait, well, hold on one second. That's really that interesting because that's how I look at everything that we do, which I think is really fascinating because we're about to start a new sort of sub-brand under Farnham Street called FS Nourish. And this is about food. And this is like taking a very Farnham Street approach to food. And people are like, you're crazy. This is never going to work. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm interested in this. So I just assume other people will be interested yes. in it. And the people who are interested in it will find me. And I have a big enough audience where I can sort of illuminate this to a lot of people. Um, but we just sort of put out a little feeler in the newsletter. And we're like, hey, we're going to start this project. Or we're thinking about starting this project. Would you be interested? And we have like 50,000 people click. Yes. 
And I was like, okay, well, this project is like passion project for me. I'm interested in it. How do I get my kids to eat healthier? How do I eat healthier? What does that mean in the context of a busy life where I can't spend six hours a day prepping or sourcing ingredients and doing this? Well, what can I do? So we hired a full-time, three-time award-winning chef, and we're going to like tackle this project. And again, it's purely my curiosity being satisfied. Nobody else's. I really love that way of approaching work. I think there's a lot of value in it. Like I said, it goes completely against the kind of groupthink way of doing these things. It's like know your audience, target it for an audience. But actually, I think you've shown very clearly that you don't always have to do that. I think the fact that it's three minutes as well. Um, I know you're a real fan of being able to explain things succinctly and that sort of shows the degree to which you understand it and the knowledge you have. I think that's so valuable as well. Now, let's put all this back into, into your book and your work. So it's called Clear Thinking. Two questions in one. What is Clear Thinking? And what would you say is the key takeaway message from the book? Well, the key takeaway is part of Clear Thinking. So Clear Thinking is just thinking, right? So we, we've been taught our whole lives that we should focus on the big decisions, who to marry, who to work for, where to live. And we generally... In those moments, we think, we, we, we're conscious. We don't just randomly pick somebody to marry and get married. We don't randomly pick a job. We put a lot of thought, effort, and time into that. We're not always perfect in those decisions, but we're directionally correct. What gets us in trouble is the ordinary moments that we don't think of as thinking. If we don't invest in our relationship with our partner, if we don't spend time cuddling, connecting, making that relationship deeper, touching base with our partner, all, it doesn't matter that we pick the best partner in the world, they're going to leave you. You're going to wake up to divorce papers. Or when you need that relationship, it won't be there. It doesn't matter that you pick the best career or you work for the best boss. If you don't show up and work your butt off, it just goes for naught. You, it gets multiplied by zero. And so clear thinking is, how do we think in ordinary moments? And I think that that determines what's next. The biggest takeaway from the book is positioning. I think that is the counterintuitive insight that I've learned from studying the best in the world for the past two decades. What is it that they do that the rest of us don't do? Why is it they consistently get better results than the rest of us? When you look from the outside, the inclination is to say that they're lucky and that they're always in the right position. They can always do the thing that we would do if we were in that position. Well, I thought that was really interesting. Why aren't we in that position? And this is where I started to look about how do we position ourselves for success before the moment of decision? How do we take ordinary moments and make it so that we are playing on easy mode instead of hard mode? So often we're playing on hard mode, we don't even recognize it. And I'll, I'll give you an example in, in a second. But the, the real insight is that everybody looks like a genius when they're well positioned. And everybody, even the smartest person looks like an idiot when they're poorly positioned. And this really sort of like, I'll tell you a story about my son, which will put this into uh, hopefully context for everybody. He came home, he gives me this exam and he's got this, uh, you know, bad grade for him, bad grade in general. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm a strict parent. So like, I take this stuff seriously. I don't just, you know, oh, okay, do better next time. And, you know, he's like, flops it to me in his teenager style. And he's like, I did my best. As if that like absolves him from the actual result. But I was like, okay, I'm not going to talk to you about this right now because as I know, you know, I was a kid who played sports and nobody quit sports because of their performance on the field. They quit sports because of the car ride on the way home when the parents are talking to them and they're emotional 
and they're stubborn and they make up their minds and it's done. And so I was like, I'm going to let this dissipate. I'm not going to say anything. You know, I pull him aside later that night, five hours later when he's calmed down, he's had a shower, done his homework and, you know, he's on his emotional. And I'm like, okay, I want you to walk me through what it means to do your best. You told me you did your best. I really want to understand this because I want to understand that from your perspective. And he's like, okay, well, you know, at 10 o'clock when I sat down for the exam, you know, I read all the questions, I checked all the points, I allocated my time accordingly, and I answered the best I could. And I was like, huh, you think about this like a lot of adults think about decision making. You make the best decision you can in the moment. But pause for a second. Let's rewind four days. Tell me what you did leading up to the test. Did you study? No. Well, I crammed the night before. I was like, did you get a good night's sleep? No. Why not? Because I was cramming. You know, I started studying at like 1030 at night. Did you eat a healthy breakfast? No. Why not? Because I was late getting up. Why were you late getting up? Because I crammed the night before. Did you get into a fight with your brother that morning? Yeah, we got into like a real rager. You know, I was so angry at him because he was in the bathroom when I wanted to use the bathroom. Why was he in the bathroom at that time? Oh, because you got up late. Okay. So you go to school, you're emotional, you're unprepared, you didn't sleep. You chose to play on hard mode. These are the things that determine your position. The test is not going to change. The result of the test might have been the exact same. I, I highly doubt it would have been anywhere near what it was. But, you know, the test is existing. The fact that you're in a good position when you take the test or a bad position, that's entirely within your control. These are things that you can do in advance of the test in ordinary moments to put yourself in a position for success on the day of the test. You should know if you're well positioned when the moment for the decision comes. And okay. I think that that's a fascinating way to think about decision making, which is like, wait, there's an easy mode and a hard mode. How do I play on easy mode? What are the things that I can do to position myself for success? So easy mode is is doing those things that are within your control ahead of time so that when the moment comes, you're best equipped to deal with it as best you can. Is that a fair 100%, summary? 100%. Yeah. You don't determine, you might not even know there's a test that day, right? But if you've studied and you've kept up with your notes and you've kept up with your class and you've done your homework and you've slept well and you've eaten well, then when that pop-up test comes, you're in a better position for it. That's why it seems like luck to other people. Oh, lucky them. They, they were prepared for that test. Well, it's not luck. I mean, it's preparation. And obviously a test at school you do tend to know when it's coming, but the tests in life, we don't tend to know when they're coming. We may think we do, but as that song says, it will blindside you some idle Tuesday. And so there's no, there's no warning, right? Like there, there's nobody who taps us on the shoulder and is like, Hey, Simon, next week, you're going to go through a crisis, go home and get prepared. It doesn't work that way. No. So actually it's, putting all these things in place as consistently and as much as possible so that whenever the moment comes, you, then you're well-equipped. I really That's a really good way of thinking about it. Okay. And you've defined these four default enemies of clear thinking. And the first one is, um, is around, let's say, our biology, right, is our mammalian responses and you know, how we can be overrun by them. And we see this so often, don't you? You see it from social media to politics to wherever, like people just basically not being in charge of themselves. Well, if you think about it, like, well, let's walk through fundamental biology and then maybe tie it to the four defaults, which is, 
We are animals. We share a lot in common with animals, including biological instincts. And so we're self-preserving, we're hierarchical, we're territorial, we're ritualistic. These have been inbred and like, these are in our DNA. These things exist. We're not territorial in the sense of like, we're walking around and, you know, pissing on telephone poles. And if somebody comes in our, our space, we're going to defend ourselves. We're territorial in the sense that if you say something that infringes on how I see myself, on how I see my identity, how I want other people to see my identity, I'm going to respond and I'm going to respond without reasoning. I'm just going to instinctively respond the way an animal does, right? So now you can start to see how these things affect us. And it's not that we're, we're not capable of thinking. It's that there's certain predictable patterns that lessen the odds that we're going to think in those situations. And so I break it down into four defaults. You're emotional, you're egotistical, you're social, and you have inertia. And inertia is like you keep doing things because you've always done them. So emotional would be, you know, fear can drive decisions, both fear of success and fear of failure. Anger can drive what's happening in the moment. Uh, when you're angry, you tend to say things that can't be unsaid. You're egotistical. You want to be right. You want to be valuable. You want to contribute. You want to be loved. You want to be respected. And when you're not those things and you perceive that you're not those things, you respond without reasoning. Social. You want to do what everybody else is doing. There's an inclination to doing that because you don't stand out. There's also a social aspect about you want to say yes to people out of obligation or guilt. How many times has have you or anybody listening to this been on the phone with somebody and said yes to something you really didn't want to do because you didn't want to disappoint the person. You didn't want to say no. So you're not thinking in that moment. You're just saying yes, right? Yeah, so you absolutely. end up in this circumstance that you don't want to be in. And inertia, you stay in jobs that you don't want to work in. You stay in relationships you don't want to be in because it's comfortable and you've always done it. And I think that these four situations lend themselves to the fact that we just don't think as much in these certain situations. Now, these situations come up all the time. This is where positioning comes in. So no matter what, you're going to be emotional. You're going to be egotistical. It's not about eliminating these because like, we can't eliminate these biological instincts in us, but we can manage them. And if we're in a good position, they become a lot easier to manage than if we're in a bad position. And so when you're in a bad position, it's really hard to manage these. It's really hard to think clearly. When you're in a good position, it's much, much easier to manage these urges that get other people into trouble and to pause, to think, to reflect, to create an artificial environment whereby you're circumventing your natural response to things. A great example of that is sort of automatic rules. And you think of... Um, I was talking to Daniel Kahneman once in his penthouse in New York, and he's talking to somebody on the phone, situation we were just talking about. And, you know, the person asked him to do something. And he said, hey, my rule is I don't say yes on the phone. And then he hung up the phone and I was like, whoa, what did you just say? And he's like, oh, I have all this pressure to say yes to people. I tend to say yes to things I don't want to do. I'm like, I do this all the time. And I was like, what is this rule thing? And he's like, so I just devised a rule. And he's like, the fun thing about rules, I don't think about the rule in the moment. I'm, it's not, not consciously thinking about this rule. I just follow my own rule. And he's like, the weird thing is nobody pushes back on my rule. I just tell them it's a rule. And then, you know, the next day I email them and I say, you know, it doesn't work in my schedule. I'm sorry. Like, good luck. 
And he's like, I went from saying yes, like 80% of the time to saying yes, like 10% of the time. And I was like, what other rules do you have? This is amazing. And he's like, I don't have any other rules. I was like, what? This might be the most valuable thing you've done. Yes, I know you've won a Nobel Prize. I know all of this. But like, you've literally thought of a way, maybe unintentionally, to circumvent the way that we think in the moment so we don't have to think. We can just manage this default. And I was like, that is very powerful. And I walked away from that and I was like, you know, I'm struggling to go to the gym every day. I'm not one of those people who loves going to the gym. Actually, I kind of hate it. You know, there's all those people on the treadmill. They're like sprinting. They've been on there for like an hour. They're not even sweating. They're not even out of breath. I'm like dying, you know, 10 minutes in, there's like sweat pouring off me. I feel like I've just run a marathon. I'm looking awkward and wondering, you know, just hating this person who's running really fast and, you know, exerting no effort. And so I was, what was happening to me is I was like working out three days a week because I want to be healthy, right? That's a goal of mine. I want to be healthy. I know to be healthy at my age, I need to work out. I need strength and resistance training and I need some cardiovascular activity. So I'm doing these things. I don't really want to do them, but I was working out three days a week and I would wake up, you know, on a Monday when I'm supposed to work out and then I'd be like, oh, I'm going to work out in the afternoon. Then the afternoon would come around and I'd be like, oh, I'm tired. I didn't sleep well last night. Uh, you know, I start negotiating with myself. I convince myself. I lie to myself. I'm like, I will do extra tomorrow. And that's the lie that I tell myself to make it okay not to work out today. Of course, when Tuesday comes around, I don't work out at all. And so I went to the gym after meeting, you know, with, with Conman and I was like, give me a printout of like, I want to see all the times I've actually come to the gym because I'm supposed to be coming three days a week. And it turned out I was coming about 1.4 times a week. <laughs> so I was like, this is not working. I'm going to create a rule. And my rule is I'm going to, I'm going to sweat every day. I'm going to work out every day. And the duration or scope of that workout can change, but the fact that I sweat every day doesn't change. And ever since then, I've missed maybe five or six days. And the rule, I don't argue with it. I wake up, I know what I have to do. And the debate in my head, if there is a debate, becomes how, what, what do I fit in? Can I fit in a full workout or am I just going to go to the gym and do squats? Am I just going to go for a short run or do I have time to do a stretch and resistance training? And do I have time to do this other stuff? But the fact that I'm sweating is non-negotiable. And so these rules become super powerful for circumventing uh, our brain. Yeah. God, you've covered a lot there. Oh, sorry. No, no, Shane, no, it's all great stuff. You were in flow. I didn't want to stop you. And, you know, I love that bit in the book where you spoke to Daniel Kahneman and I I'm definitely nicking that and I've actually noticed I've started to nick that a little bit myself already um perhaps without doing it consciously you know I've been asked for quotes for various things for talks and whatever else and you know rather than be put on the spot it's like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna go away and I'll come back to you but I'm, I'm certainly gonna implement that as a rule and I know you've got various other safeguards and things like this too not be pulled in by these default enemies of clear thinking, as you call them. But I just want to go back to them because you were talking, obviously, about emotional ego, social inertia. And in terms of, for example, emotional, so you said you make bad decisions when you're angry. That made me think of your story with your son. And so obviously it was knowing, okay, this is not the time because he, he might say something that he regrets or, you know, you're not going to get the answer. So knowing that, and then it reminded me, I've interviewed um, the Olympic gold medal winning hockey team, 2016 British women's team. And they did this thing called Thinking Thursday where they had their buttons pushed big time. And it was so they got to understand how they reacted 
when they were tired, stressed and all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, treated unfairly. And I think there's real value, isn't there, in knowing what your default, let's say, emotional response is. Is it anger? Is it withdrawal? Whatever it may be. Once you know that, then when those signs come up, you might not always catch it. But then perhaps you can put a rule in place. Okay, when I'm angry, I'm not going to send an email. When I'm angry, I'm not going to have a proper discussion with my wife, something like that. And then just one other thing I wanted to mention about the emotion, in particular, this biological, because as you said, we're animals, right? So we're like our mammalian relatives, except for the fact that we have that ability for meta-awareness. So we uniquely have that ability to to see this response come up, to have the anger come up, to have the thought going, this guy's a douche and I want to tell him that, to see the thought, to see the feeling, to see the impulse, but actually to witness it, to observe it, and to kind of let it pass by. And that's a key point, isn't it? And that's something you emphasize really nicely in the book. Yeah, so true, right? So, you know, going back to the comments earlier, my emotional response to that is fire, like a Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. Some people's emotional response to negative comments might be to withdraw or become passive or shy away from things. So having the self-awareness to understand how you respond to these comments will dictate how you can interpret them in the future in a way that will more likely to get you the results you want, right? So like your point, maybe I don't send emails when I'm angry. Maybe my response is that I take a breath. Maybe my response is before I send an email, I take five breaths. And I ask myself one question, which is, is this more likely to get me the outcome that I want or less? Is this moving me toward the outcome I want or away from the outcome I want? And with my kids, I, I use a little saying, I tap them on the shoulder, you know, when they're bickering and I'm like, water or gas. That's it. Three words. Are you pouring water on this situation or are you pouring gas on this situation? I don't tell them what to do. Sometimes they want to throw gas on this situation. Like yeah. they're two teenage boys, you know, they're 14 months apart. They're like, sometimes they choose gas. Uh, most times when I do that, they're like water and they like put their head down and walk away. And so it's just helping these little, little sayings, knowing how you respond in situations, tapping you on the shoulder, getting around it. Sometimes, you know, the solution is to recognize that you're angry or recognize you're upset, that's hard to do in practice. It works like 20 to 30% of the time, I think, in practice. If my experiences are sort of like anybody else's. So what else can we do to prevent them? What else can we do to circumvent them? That's where these automatic rules come in a little bit. You don't have to think in the moment. So if the moment does happen, and you happen to be playing on hard mode, not easy mode, if you're playing on easy mode, maybe you recognize and catch yourself maybe 50 to 70% of the time. But let's say you happen to be playing on hard mode, you happen to have these moments. Well, the rules come in because now they give you, you've determined already a way to turn your desired behavior into your default behavior. Yeah, nicely said. And so you're, the second one, as you've already mentioned, is ego. You gave a nice description of it earlier where you said it's sort of how we view ourselves, how we want others to view us. And I think that's a really nice, nice description, isn't it? And we all get caught up in it. For me, the most important recognition, though, is that it's not you. It's this idea that we have of ourselves. And, and often it coalesces into an identity. And that can, can often be problematic because when you have an identity, you attach your self-worth to it. You, you fight to defend it. And so I don't know what you think about this, bit of an almost philosophical question here. The fewer things you can really identify with, the better. Yeah, the smaller the surface area of your, that you're defending the better. I think that, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that 
a lot of people want to eliminate their ego and I tend to view that as impossible. Mm. I think a better approach is can I replace my ego from my sense of self to getting the best outcome? Uh, and I think that if you can do that, then your ego can be a powerful driving force for you. I agree. You can't get rid of your ego, but I do think you can disidentify from it, you know, get a bit of distance from it and recognize, you know, it's not who you are. Because I think a lot of people without even realizing it, think that their idea of who they are is who they are, you know, and I, and yeah. I do think that causes a lot of problems. Well, it, it definitely does. I imagine a lot of people listening to this sort of work in an organization. And if you're in an organization, let's say you lead a team and you're at a meeting and you're reporting on your team and one of your colleagues has this passive aggressive comment undermining your team or undermining you. Uh, and it could just be a slight, it could be a 1% sort of slight against you, hmm. but you instinctively get your backup. And what do you do? You respond right away and you respond with another 1% slight on them. And before you know it, this ordinary moment, this ordinary meeting, you're not thinking all of a sudden you're escalating, you're throwing gas on the situation instead of water, <laughs> but you're not intending to, you're not thinking in that moment. But what are you doing? You're being the animal that you were sort of bred to be. You're defending your territory. You're defending your team. You're defending your sense of self. We have thousands of years of biology going into this. Like the fact that you, you can't eliminate that, but you can manage it. Yeah. And you can transcend it almost. Right. Um, I love that the saying, by the way, water or gas. I think I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to nick that. And I'm, I'm assuming just a quick one on that, that you're also leaving it up to them. So you're not saying oh, yeah. you guys need to calm down. It's like, okay, you, I'm just, just time out. Like, do you want to calm down or do you want to escalate this? And it's up to you. Is that right? Well, when, when, when they're with each other, right. Right. And it's, it's sort of like us in the house, they can decide what they do. Right. And they can each decide. Right. So if, if one chooses gasoline and the other chooses water, it gets diffused. Right. Uh, and, and I know in science that doesn't quite work that way, but like for the purposes of the conversation, it does. When we're in public and they're doing something to somebody else, I just say, choose water. Right. So I'm, I'm helping them in a, in a sort of non judgmental way about what they're doing, but I'm like, dissipate the situation, make the situation right. You're going down a bad path here. And so I'll be more, a little bit more instructive around them. But what that water looks like, I don't tell them. I just say, choose water. Um, I, I think that's really a beautiful um, example of really clever parenting, I have to say. It's clearly something you say a lot. And so that will just become their own default track as they get older and older. So I think that I think well, that's... They, they actually use it with each other now, which I find really, really oh, interesting. Cool. Right? Really cool. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because they're true teenagers, right? So one of them will like lob a grenade at the other person and then the other person will respond and they'll be like water or gas. Oh, that is awesome. I hope you yeah. feel suitably uh, proud of yourself when that happens. That's wicked. In terms of the ego, there was a line in the book that I really like that I think talks to what we're speaking of here. You had a conversation with a CEO and said, what traits would you consider to be most associated with people who will go on and quote unquote succeed in life? And they said how willing someone would be to change their mental model. And I think this is very closely tied in with ego. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Yeah. So he was talking about how if I could pick one trait to hire on, it would be the ability to change your mind. 
And I think that so often, uh, I mean, when's the last time you changed your mind or the last time you said, I don't know, or the last time you, uh, you know, realized halfway through defending an opinion, you didn't really believe it, or you had just gotten it from a headline, or mm. maybe you don't know all there is to know about that. And I think, you know, that willingness to change your mind is, is really valuable in life because as we get more information, uh, you know, it was Darwin who said the most, uh, the best of the species are the ones that can adapt best. And mm. I think that we just need to to get out of this mentality that we know what's best and sort of become like water and just adapt to the situation and, and change. Bruce Lee quote, love it. Yeah, become like yeah. water. Okay, here's a question then. What do you think is, in your view, a very typical problematic mental model that people struggle to let go of? or cling to too hard? Well, I think one that we can all resonate with, and, you know, I talk about this in the book, but it's a good generalization for everybody is, you know, when you have a solution to a problem and somebody else has a solution to a problem, you almost never want to let that go. If both those solutions are, are technically going to get you to the outcome that you want, you want to believe that your solution is best. And I think what you're not doing is looking at what's best for the organization and you're looking at what's best for yourself. And that comes from this deep desire, right? And the desire within us all is we all want the same thing. We're not different people. I mean, no matter what culture you're in, no, no matter what language you speak, you want to be loved, you want to be respected, you want to contribute, you want to be listened to. We all want those things. And so that desire to hold on to this idea, even when it might not be the fastest or objectively the best way to get to the result is really strong in us because it really goes against how we want to see ourselves in those situations. Social, number three, you talk about clapping at the beginning of that mm. chapter, right? And in terms of, you know, Nazi Germany, it was used, I think, as a technique, as a tool. We could be sat in an auditorium or whatever and think, yeah, that wasn't much cop. But if everyone else gets up and starts clapping wildly, you know, you don't want to be the guy or the woman sat there going no unless you're particularly truculent. Well, think of a think of a standing ovation right and sort of i wanted to use real examples that everybody could see themselves in you might have thought a talk was good and you'll clap a little bit but once somebody starts clapping and you know then another person stands and then another person stands and all of a sudden you're standing and you're like it wasn't that good in your head but you're doing it anyway right yeah i've heard you talk about this and write about this is just how much we want to fit in how much we don't want to you know, swim against the tide. And and that's such a, a strong impulse and sort of becoming aware of that, you know, again, can be, you know, hugely beneficial. And, and a lot of people are in denial about that. Well, let's think about this a different way, right? If you do what everybody else is going to do, you will get the same results that everybody else gets. And so you need, you can take away two lessons from that simple, very simple, but not simplistic statement. One is how do I create positive deviation? right? How do I, uh, or advantageous divergence or whatever you want to call it. When do I opt to go against the crowd and how can I be right? Because that's what's going to lead to different results than everybody else. It's not enough to go against the crowd. You also have to be correct when you do it. The other thing that you can take away from that statement is if I need to get to a baseline level of achievement very quickly, I will copy best practices, but by best practices by definition are just average. That's what everybody is doing. 
but I can get to an average level very quickly by just copying what everybody else is doing. Yeah. And I think that those are things where you can use social to work for you or against you, right? So if we understand it at a deeper level, we can use it to get ahead really quickly and we can use it to create advantageous divergence. And we can recognize when we're doing things we don't want to do, like saying yes to people we don't want to say yes to, finding ourselves in situations we don't want to work in. But so often we're scared to go against the crowd and that's okay. But if you're expecting different results than other people and you're not doing something meaningfully different than other people, you're only going to be disappointed. But if you're expecting different results than other people and you're not doing something meaningfully different than other people, you're only going to be disappointed. And I just want to tie this in with inertia briefly, because it just got me thinking about actually the end of, of your book where you talk about, um, for example, the s- people who are speaking to, I think, 80, 90 year olds, whatever, who tend to be happier than, for example, those people in midlife and why they're happy and what they have taken from, you know, what life's all about. And a couple of things that stood out to me. First of all, you tend not to regret the things that you that you do, but you do regret the things that you weren't uh, courageous enough to do in the moment. And I think this speaks to both inertia and as well social, you know, not wanting to go against the tide, even though perhaps you might have that intuition, that impulse that says, no, this is the way I, my heart's desire to go. But what if I get scoffed at? What if I get people don't give me their approval, all that kind of thing. But the other one that really stuck out for me, just in terms of the old people and this bit was not worrying. What a waste of time worry is. And it's worry that stops us so often, maybe from not standing up and doing the uh, the applause. And what are we worried about? We're worried about what other people will think of us. So we've really <laughs> let other people who uh, may or may not know us dictate what we do in our life. I think with the, we regret the things we don't do and we fear failure, but the failure, two things come out here, you know, failure is over with pretty quickly. It sucks. It's sharp pain and it goes away, you know, within a week or two. Regret lasts forever and never goes away. And it's something that just gnaws away at you in this little, you know, it's a low sound, but it's always there. And I think that it's really important to just, we can fail, we can get over it and we can persevere and we can move on. And, you know, you regret the novel you didn't write. You regret the love of your life that you didn't chase after. You regret the, you know, these are the things that you end up regretting in life and you end up thinking about them at the time and you think about them all the time. And then near your deathbed, you're like, I wish I had done that. I wish I had done that. And those are the things that people near the end of their life say, hey, you know, you should probably do those things because we're thinking about them all the time. We're not thinking about the times we failed. We're not thinking about the bruises and the scrapes and the, all of that stuff. We're thinking about the things we didn't try. And I want to come back to that because I want to come back to fear. And part of confidence comes from taking action, right? So if you think I'm not courageous or I am scared or I am, I can't do this. Well, I'm going to suggest that what keeps you in place is that you're looking at the outcome and not the next step. Change where you're looking from the, you know, from the ultimate outcome to what is the next step? Can I take the next step? And I call this next step courage. You don't need the courage to get to the outcome. You just need the courage to take the next possible step. And that step, that action will create confidence for the next step. 
Mm, yeah, beautiful. And just quickly again, before we come back to uh, some of the other things you, you've written about, just sticking with the the wisdom of old age, we say, and you know, impending death, right? Uh, mm. So valuable. I spoke to Ryan Holiday about this, the whole memento mori, and you know, death can. It's like we said earlier about at school, you know when the test's coming, but you never know when the test is coming in real life. Well, the same is true of death, right? And mm-hmm. as you said, you know, we we get hung up on regret and that the, the ego, that the voice in the head comes up and goes, oh no, play it safe. You know, as you say, don't take that risk because, you know, oh, I might get embarrassed. There might be a bit of shame. What if I fail? And that's obviously a bit scary, but if you put it in the context of, well, remember you're going to die. Like, so why not, right? And I do think, we have uh, culturally we turn away from death don't we but turning towards it embracing it looking it in the eye very valuable yeah i mean we are going to die it's a it's a fact and i don't think it's going to change and acknowledging that you can't change that uh, can free you to live a life based on your own scoreboard rather than other people's definition of what you should be chasing and going after let's talk a bit then about your guardrails, your safeguards, your rules. You've spoken about speaking to Daniel Kahneman about saying no on the phone, which is fantastic. But those are automatic rules. You also talk about prevention, creating friction, guardrails, and a shift perspective. So creating friction, correct me if I'm wrong, this would be having vegetables in the house, not having chocolate in the house, putting the mobile phone in the mobile phone case and locking it for a few hours so it's hard to get to it. So that's creating friction. But can you talk as well about the guardrails? This is checklist. If you could sort of expand and just explain this one and the others that you really think are most impactful. Yeah. So, like, I think at the bottom, the end of the day, let's maybe take one step back. Your environment will dictate behavior. It's like this tailwind you can't see and it drives what happens. If your phone's in front of you and you're trying to concentrate and your phone goes off, you're going to pick up your phone. If your phone is in a different room and it goes off, you're not going to hear it. So your environment, that's a physical environment thing. The people you consume, the information you consume, uh, whether it be Twitter, social media, podcast, listening to this high quality podcast, is all of the information going into your head high quality. And if it's not, that information is eventually going to flow down to your future thoughts. The information you let in your mind through reading, through conversations, through friends, behaviors, right? So we're still talking physical environment in a way. Listening is a bit virtual, but um, behaviors, if you hang around with people who are egotistical and uh, you're going to become egotistical, if you hang around people who are lazy, you're going to become lazy. If it doesn't matter that you're ambitious, if you have five people you spend the most time with are lazy, eventually you're going to lose the battle with willpower and you're going to become just like them. So environment really has a big role in how we behave. I think one of the insights that I had that was maybe a bit counterintuitive is we can create our own environment through structure. We can create our own environment through process. Part of that is, okay, well, what what are the common scenarios at work that people tend to derail meetings or, or lead to poor decisions, poor results? And so, you know, One of the safeguards we have in the book is sort of separate the problem definition from the problem solution. And why is that effective? Well, most of the time when people have a problem, they book a one-hour meeting, 
they go into that meeting and they're like, okay, we have a problem. How do we solve it? What's the problem? And then solutions. And so what happens is somebody plausibly throws out something that sounds like a problem. All of a sudden, people spend 50 minutes solving the problem. Well, the problem is, in this case, the problem is, yeah, uh, you didn't define the problem correctly. The odds of you spending a few minutes defining the problem are not, I mean, you're less likely, you're solving the wrong problem. So what can we do? What, what artificial constraints can we put in the environment to increase the odds that we're solving the right problem? We can separate problem definition from problem solution. You can have a 30-minute meeting on problem definition. You don't talk solutions. You get insight and input from everybody on your team and the meeting, and you're like, what is the problem? The person who defines the problem, another safeguard, it, it, the person who is responsible for the decision has to design. Let me recut this. The person responsible for the decision has to define the problem. Nobody else can define the problem. If they're gonna be responsible and accountable for making the decision, they have to be responsible for defining the problem. So they can take input from everybody else. And that input, this is a really good thing too, because it allows people to think differently. It allows you to walk home and think, oh, I have a new insight into that problem I hadn't thought of. I'm gonna email and I'm gonna say, it allows introverts to contribute. It allows extroverts to mm. contribute. You tend to get a much higher quality information. Not only do you get better information about the problem, but now because you've created space, you can sort of think about it a little bit more. You can check in with your intuitive self and you can check in with your rational self. And then when you show up to solve the problem, you have a much better idea of what the problem is, right? And people say this slows things down. Man, it massively speeds things up. I've used this for 15 years mm -hmm. at an intelligence agency. This this is gold. I'm telling you right now, we would work on operations and we would do this like, almost real time. You could even do it in the same day. Ideally, you space it out a day, but you could have one morning in the meeting, one morning in the afternoon. I mean, you just want to create the space for people to reason and think and separate all of these type A people who want to contribute, who want to signal, who want to be part of the team, who want to be well. And these are all the things that make us beautiful as humans, but they also can lead us astray. And so that's a perfect example of sort of a safeguard we can put in place to prevent problems, to dissipate the situation, to use an artificial environment to get to a desired behavior. That's so true. Meetings, isn't it? And it comes back to you talk as well about hierarchy and our propensity to put you know people in these kind of arbitrary hierarchies which is an ego thing of you know back in the day it would be royalty and aristocracy and now it's celebrity and sports stars or ceos and obviously you know bosses at work or whatever else and i can certainly relate and i'm sure anyone listening can to that being in a meeting as you say and you know someone chips in first and particularly if they're high status everyone just falls in behind and then yeah. you could completely be going down the wrong alleyway. So what you're saying there is no, if you if you if you stop, pause, recognize that there's a, you know, that can happen and zero in on that moment and bring yeah. everyone in with you, you get a much higher quality thing. And so then you your ladder's up against the right wall rather than however quickly you're climbing. If it's up against the wrong wall, that's wrong. And as you said, if it works in an intelligence agency, you'd be mad not to copy it. Well, the, the idea is to get out of the hippo opinion, right? So the highest paid person in the room's opinion. Um, and so if you're at a lower level and your boss is at your meeting and you're defining the problem, 
they can provide input into it. So you've structured this in a way to that understands biology. You've structured it in a way that understands our sort of defaults, if you will. And you've created this artificial constraint to get the best information from other people. If everybody's on board with this, and I mean, it's pretty easy to get everybody on board with this because actually what ends up happening is if you look at your time today, most of your time is spent correcting poor initial decisions and you've solved the wrong problem, you've communicated in the wrong way, you haven't been effective. Uh, and so once you start getting really closer to the problem, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but you're going to get a lot closer to the problem. You're going to experience a lot more free time and a lot better thinking. And I think that you know, if your boss's opinion is always correct, then you're probably working for the wrong boss. <laughs> yeah, well said. Um, Shane, right, so you talk about how to handle mistakes. Can you just give a brief masterclass on how to handle mistakes? Because we're all familiar with mistakes, but I was involved in one uh, where a lot of people were involved last week. And something I noticed is that the first automatic, let's say, biological, emotional responses, point that finger. Who's to blame? And this was, we were in this process of, okay, no, we need to solve it first. We, you know, this is this is moving fast, but people do point the finger. So I guess that will be a, a key part of it. But yes, just a quick masterclass, if you could. That's literally the first part of it, right? So if you experience a mistake, and I'll use the language I use with my kids because it helps adults too, uh, which is, you have something, you didn't get the result, you made a mistake, you did something that you didn't intend, maybe you just did something wrong, you weren't thinking, and you end up making a mistake. Now what? Well, the first step is what is my contribution to this problem? I might not have a 100% contribution for it, but I have a contribution. And that gets us out of pointing fingers. Right. So the first thing to do is like, how do I get out of this situation where I'm absolving myself and I'm saying it was somebody else's fault? They didn't do this. They didn't do that. No, you're never going to learn. You're never going to get better if you keep pointing the finger at other people. And all the time and energy you spend pointing the finger at other people comes from, you know, at, at the cost of solving the problem. So first step, what's my contribution to this problem? It might be a 100% contribution, but you definitely have a contribution. It might be 10% contribution. doesn't matter. You've contributed to this problem, this mistake. And so now I've opened the door to being strong enough to admit that I contributed to this problem. When I'm strong enough to admit to it, now I can look at what was my contribution to this problem. What did I do wrong? What was the mistake? How do I do better next time? Those are the two fundamentals to solving a mistake, right? And, and, you know, I think we give four steps in the book, but those are the two that really matter, which is opening yourself up to, I contributed to this. And you can do this with anything in your life. If you're not getting the results you want, if you're not in the place you want, if you're not getting the promotion, if you're waiting for somebody to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, Simon, you have all this potential here, here's this golden opportunity. We've been just waiting for you to show up. None of that's going to happen. What is going to happen and what is going to make a difference is you can say, what is my contribution to where I'm at right now? You are the CEO and the architect of your life. You are responsible for your trajectory. That doesn't mean you're going to get perfect outcomes all the time, but it does mean that you can take control of the situation and you can acknowledge that you're contributing to where you are today. And the first, once you acknowledge that you're contributing to it, you can start to look at, you can reflect, what am I doing wrong? What could I be doing better? What could I be doing differently? 
And then you can start to change your trajectory. But most of us don't want to do that. We want to sit, you know, we go to the bar with our mates after work. And all of a sudden we're thinking, uh, you know, we're talking, we're just like, oh, I wish my boss would just recognize how good I am. Well, that's never going to happen. You you have to make that happen. Yeah, that's such a valuable point. And certainly one I, I arrived at a few years ago, you know, realizing that I, I called it a burn the boats attitude, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to create stuff or I'm going to get kicked out trying to create stuff. And that was the point at which, you know, a lot of things happen, even things I, I didn't anticipate, you know, it's like that intention. And I had a few goals in mind and a few objectives in mind, but actually it was the intention that was the important thing. And it's, it created opportunities that I could never have anticipated that actually in many ways were more interesting than my initial goal, but it is that intention of no, yeah. yeah, I've got to make stuff happen, as you said so beautifully there. Well, right. it, it's it's kind right. of physics if you think about it, right? It, it, it's you know it the most powerful law in human biology is mirrored reciprocation. If I treat you unkindly, you're going to treat me unkindly. If I passively passively aggressively make a comment towards you, you're going to passively aggressively respond to me. However, how do we use this to our advantage? If I treat you kindly, you're going to treat me kindly. The key is you have to go positive and go first. That's how you don't end up sitting in a bar waiting for people to sort of tap you on the shoulder and be like, you have so much potential. Here's the opportunity you've been waiting for. It's like, no, go show people you deserve that opportunity. Go show people you can do that opportunity. And if they don't like it, well, that's a sign, right? Maybe you take a different path and maybe you leave and maybe you do something differently. But being passive and waiting for things to happen to you only results in you being exactly where you are if you're not happy with that. And you end up being that guy at the bar cursing the world for treating you know you so badly, right? So, so signs of that are you're cynical, right? You hang around with cynical people. You're cynical yourself. You're waiting for other people to tap you on the shoulder and give you all these opportunities. You think that opportunities should be yours just because you've been the, been in the building uh, for this long. And so these are all signs that you're you're becoming passive at, at some level. Absolutely right, Shane. Last thing. So you've got the five-step process for decision-making. I want to give you a bit of a sort of personal scenario that I think resonates with you because I'm pretty sure you've been through this yourself and hopefully will resonate with others as well. So you're in a position, actually just relates to what we've just been speaking to to a degree as well. You're in a position, right? So you're in a job or you're at a bit of a, a juncture and, and you're considering, right, do I want to go and be an entrepreneur, do something where I'm my own boss? I have to, I have no choice but to create my own opportunities. I'm, you know, the buck completely stops with me or take the safe job. And let's say, you know, you want to be an entrepreneur, but then within that entrepreneurial position, perhaps again, there's another two forks. One is I really want to follow my true passion that involves me swimming against the tide, that involves me saying stuff that will, you know, potentially even get me ridiculed or there's another thing I do that I quite like that will be quite fun, a safe option to pay the bills, but, you know, won't, isn't my heart's desire, right? So in that situation, could you just talk through, you know, how your, your five-step process would work to, to get the decision? Well, the most important step is to really define the problem, right? Really get clarity on what problem you're trying to solve. Is the problem uh, you want safety and it's more valuable to spend time with your family? Is the problem you want freedom and you're never going to get that at work? And 
you know, is the problem. You want to be accountable and controllable for your outcomes. You, you, nobody can define the problem for you. I can't define the problem for you. Uh, Simon can't define the problem for you. You have to take ownership over the problem because you're the one. And then you can sort of, what are the options available to me? What are the things that I can do? Um, and what is the criteria by which I'm going to evaluate this decision? What matters and what doesn't matter? So if I'm thinking the problem is X, Y, Z, but the most important thing to me is family time, well, then you're probably not going to start a business because that's going to be a grind and you're going to be walking across glass all the time. And then you, once you've figured out your, you know, the problem and you figured out your options and you have your criteria, well, then you can choose what to do and act on it. And I think that those are, it's a very simple sort of like process by which we can make these decisions. These are big decisions. These are structured decisions. They're not sort of casual choices in the moments. We know we're thinking in these moments. We want to separate these phases, right? We don't want to go through this whole thing in the day. The one piece of advice I would say to everybody though, when you're doing this and you're making a personal decision like this, especially something as big as this and maybe irreversible as this is the most helpful thing I've ever seen. And I talk about it in the book is making the invisible visible, pull out a blank sheet of paper and write down your thoughts, write down what you're thinking, write down what you want, write down your criteria. You don't have to show anybody this, put it away for a day, pick it up tomorrow, read it to yourself out loud. And that is going to tell you so much about the decision. It's going to tell you, where you need to gather more information, where you might be mistaken. Because what makes sense in your head is not going to make sense on paper. And when you read it back to yourself, you're going to be like, oh, there's something I have to figure out. And with that said, I will also say, because the example you gave, is there a small step that I can take today that puts me in a better position to be able to do this tomorrow? Do I save more money today so that I'm in a stronger position later if I want to leave? Like there's always something you can do. It doesn't have to be these all or nothing decisions. There's always something I can do today to put myself in a better position to get to the outcome I want. And it doesn't mean that I go all in on that. Now, I'm like you. I burned the bridges. I'm like, you know, when I left the three-letter agency, I cashed in my pension. My accountant was like, this is the worst financial decision you can make. And I just looked at him and I said, it's the best psychological decision I can make. I need to know nobody's coming to save me. I need to know that it's all on me. I need yeah. to know I'm it. And that's all there is. And if I have any inclination in the back of my mind that somebody will save me or I just have to get to 55 and then all of a sudden I'll start collecting a pension, it's not going to work, right? Because yeah. I'm, I'm going to be, you know, I'm not going to be as risk-taking. I'm going to be more cautious. I'm not going to work as hard. And so you have to think about all these things and how they relate to that. With that said, you can start today. You can start your hobby project. You can start learning about the things you want to do, but it's not enough to learn, right? Remember first step confidence, but that first step creates the confidence for the next step. I would also advocate, stop talking about it and just start doing it. I mean, so often we, we talk about these things with people. And if you have a friend who's been talking about something with you for years, the next time it comes up, just tell them to stop. Tell them you've heard the story before. Mm. And unless they start doing something about it, you don't want to hear the story again. And, you know, it sounds like it's mean, but it's very kind. And we talk about the difference between kind and nice in the book. And that is a kind thing to say because you're their friend. You want the best outcome for them. So, hey, you know what? This story is on repeat with you. I don't want to hear it anymore until you take the first step. 
I think that's so valuable. So many people tell people what they want to hear. That's seen as, oh, being a good friend. No, no, no. Tell someone what they what they need to hear. Actually reminds me of a quote of Andre Agassi. He said, he'd never cheat anyone out of a six love, six love, because that may be just what they needed needed to grow. I said it was the last thing. Very quick, actually, question. Because you said about defining the problem. So maybe it's thinking, okay, I want to spend more time with my family so you don't start the business. How, however, look, look, I, you're a family guy. I'm a family guy. And so it becomes, what is the bigger problem? So this is interesting, right? So so problem and criteria are two things that sort of compete with each other. And an example we give in the book is write them down on sticky notes, especially criteria by which you're going to judge your solution. And yes, there's always multiple criteria that factor, but what is the one thing you're solving for? Make sure you solve for that first before you solve for your second variable. How do you figure that out? Well, you write down your two problems on a sticky note or your 10 problems that you're working on in your head and you sort of rank them. You just hold two up together and you're like, which is the more important problem out of here? And then you throw that one away and you hold up another one. And at the end, you're left with one sticky note. That doesn't mean all the other things aren't problems, but now you have a clear idea of what the most important problem is. You can do the exact same thing with criteria so that you can get very clear on what the most important criteria is because you want to make sure you solve for that first. And for me, and I wonder if this is true for you too, if I went through that sticky note process, you know, I want to spend time with my family and I do, but actually I think the top thing is not having someone else decide my fate. You know, it's mm-hmm. a bit like what you said, you know, like I don't want to get to 55 and have someone tap me on the shoulder and go, hey, you're not wanted around here anymore. Often for some arbitrary reason, you know, it's it's like much better even though there's a lot of stresses that come with that to be for this is for me. And I mean, I wonder if it's, I, my guess is it is for you too, is be like, no, that I want to decide my own future and fate. Well, so, so you want the most important thing for you is to be in control, right? But that, that means that you're willing to sacrifice things in the short term because like starting a business or starting a new journey is a grind. I mean, you might look mm. at entrepreneurs and say, oh, that looks fun, that sexy lifestyle. And, you know, the first five years of almost any business is six days a week, 12 hours a day. Uh, you know, it's a grind. You're walking across a floor of glass every day and you're just trying to get better and go to bed and you wake up and you do the same thing over and over again. And that involves sacrifice from your family and your commitment. So make sure everybody's on board with that because you need that whole support network to go through that. And if your partner or your, your, your spouse is not on board with that, you're never going to be able to get through it, right? So these are decisions where you might have an inclination, but you want to make them together as a family as well. I mean, I've been with my kids and fired people on a ski hill, right? I've been talking to, I've taken board calls in the car and I am the biggest family person in the world. And I dedicate so much time to family. One reason I did want to do this was to spend more time with my kids. But that doesn't mean that I don't end up in these situations that, uh, you know, I, uh, you, the kids see something that they're like, what, what is going on? Like it's 7 PM at night. Why are you taking a board call while we're driving? And I'm like, I just have to, like, this is, this is my life and this is what I do. And this is part of what allows us to live the life that we live. And part of what allows you to see how different people work and different people operate. And also I want you to see the reality. I don't want to hide what it's like to be an entrepreneur from you, because if you want to be an entrepreneur, when you grow up, you're going to be in this position too. Shane, I thoroughly enjoyed your book and I would say oh, I almost you. more enjoyed speaking to you and that's saying something. It's been a, it really has been a lot of fun over the last hour and a bit. So just thank you very much oh, and congratulations. Thank you, Simon.
Great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. I hope you enjoyed it. The links are in the show notes. And if you fancy giving this episode a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify, I'd be very grateful. And do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com or at Simon Mundy on social media. 